A piece of heaven on earth. What comes to your mind when you think of that phrase? A piece of heaven on earth. Maybe you need to close your eyes and think about one of the best vacations you have, what makes you have so much joy in that happy place. Maybe it takes you to the Rocky Mountains and you go to Jasper or Banff and you think, this is amazing. Maybe you like being out on the lake and just surrounded by water, whether you're in a boat or swimming or doing something of that sort. Maybe you like just curling up with a great book, a cup of coffee and a blanket and thinking, ah, this is my happy place. Maybe it's a lot closer to home even than that. Maybe you like going to the gym and you think, oh, God, this is heaven on earth. Or your wood shop in your garage or in your basement or a sewing room or just spending time together. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my family went to the World Water Park. Our kids had been asking for months to go. And so finally, I took some holidays. We took them to the water park at West Dead. And my seven-year-old and eight-year-old looked at six stories of slides. And they said, Dad, is this what heaven is like? And I'm thinking it looks a lot more like a beach on Mexico than this, my sons. Maybe it's more of a person. You love Sunday family dinners. It's just special. You think of going out to your favorite coffee shop with a close friend. You think of traveling back home, wherever home is, and being together. Today we're going to look at God bringing a piece of heaven to earth in the form of the tabernacle. We're going to go through this really quick, so I hope you're ready for a lot of scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Exodus, and it's been a terrific nine-week journey. First uh, First 24 chapters took eight weeks. The last 15 chapters we're doing in one. So God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up, and that we would see a piece of heaven on earth and what that means for us over three millennia later. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open up, up to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. If you have, uh, don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew racks in front of you. Of course, if you're watching from home, you can download something to your smartphone or your tablet so you can follow along that way. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Big numbers are the set chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. Now, if you need to, uh, a refresher of what's taken place, here's what's happened so far. The Israelites are under uh, slavery to the Egyptians. And so they cry out to God, God, save us. We can't do this anymore. So God raises up two brothers, a man by the name of Moses, his brother Aaron. And he says, you are going to take my people Israel up out of Egypt and towards the promised land. And so God performs miracle after miracle. They eventually escape from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They arrive on the other side of the Red Sea. They praise God. He continues to provide for them every single day with food. Uh, Then they journey to Sinai. You hear the Ten Commandments. Last week, we talked about this idea of the covenant where God says, I've saved you. I've rescued you. Will you be my people? The people say, yes. God says, all right. And then he says, allow me to give you a piece of heaven on earth. Now, we're going to go through this really quick, but as a kind of an outline as to what's taking place, here's what happens in Scripture. Uh, For the first few chapters, we have instructions for the tabernacle. Then we have a worship of the golden calf. That gets really interesting. And then the building of the tabernacle. We're going to do all this in 30 minutes. So hold on tight, because here we go. This is Exodus chapter 24, picking up in verse 12. Refresher from last Sunday. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Behold, Aaron, my brother, is with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to him. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. 
the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So two things to draw from that. Um, when God is giving the instructions to the tabernacle, it's one-on-one with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. At the very same time, Aaron, Moses' brother, is with the people down at the bottom of Mount Sinai. That's some foreshadowing. We're definitely going to come back to that later. And so here's what happens at the beginning. At when the instruction of the tabernacle, it points us back to creation. However, unlike speaking the world into creation in Genesis chapter one, God's going to need some building material. So picking up in chapter 25, here's verses one to nine. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves, you shall receive this contribution. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, Silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for settings for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Dave, how on earth did they come up with all of that stuff, all of the jewels, the precious metals, this wonderful fabric? Where did it come from? Back in chapter 12, um, we are reminded that Pharaoh, when he sent the Israelites to go out, the Israelites asked the Egyptians for, for some goods. And so they plundered the Egyptians. We see it in chapter 12, verse 36. And so they're carrying around this massive amount of wealth as they journey through the Red Sea and towards Mount Sinai. And it is no small amount. They have about 2,200 pounds of gold, 7,500 pounds of silver, 5,300 pounds of bronze, and 15,000 pounds of precious metals. If you're thinking... Uh, How could they be carrying around 30,000 pounds of precious metals? Remember, there's about 2 million of them. This only works out to about a quarter ounce or something like that per person. So it's not an extravagant amount individually, but it sounds like a lot as a whole. Now, we're going to go through seven chapters, which would take you about 40 minutes to read, let alone it being repeated in chapters 35 to 40 with some pictures so you can see what's taking place. I'm going to stand to the side. If you want to take notes, it's coming at you fast. This is going to be an architectural drawing. So, Justin, this one specifically for you. Here we have 150 feet by 75 feet. And it's important to notice that the entrance to the tabernacle will be on the east side. We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. The 75 by 150 is divided into two perfect squares. On the right side, we have the outer court. Anybody can enter there. Uh, Man, woman, whether you're a priest, whether you're not a priest, kids, everybody, all are welcome. On the left side, you'll notice right down the middle is the inner court. And that's where the tent of meeting is actually going to take place. So let's go from one dimensional to two dimensional. When you arrive on the east side of the tent of meeting um, at the tabernacle, you'll see immediately the bronze altar. This is where the sacrifices are made for um, atonement of sins for all of the people of Israel. Then you get a little bit closer to the tent of meeting and you see a bronze wash basin. What's important for the note takers in the room is the closer you get to God, the more wealthy and important and nicer the materials become. Bronze in the outer court, gold in the inner court. 
you arrive at the tabernacle and you start to see the beauty of what's taking place. The curtains are of the nicest fabric that you can possibly make um, in the ancient Near East. You walk inside and to your right is the table of the presence. On the table, 12 loaves of bread. This represents the 12 tribes of Israel. In front of you is the altar of incense. Both of these items made in wood, acacia wood, and then covered in gold. To your left is a lampstand. And if any of you are thinking, man, I don't know what to ask for Christmas. Ask for this menorah. It's only 75 pounds of pure gold. If you're curious, I checked it out this past week. 1,700 bucks an ounce. That menorah is worth north of $2 million. You initially, uh, you arrive at the most holy place. This is the, the inner part of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And you'll notice it's a perfect cube. More on that at the end of the message. Inside the most holy place is one object. It's the Ark of the Covenant. This is what God has asked Moses and Aaron and eventually two of the finest craftsmen in Israel to make. It's made of acacia wood. It's covered in fine gold and inside are only three items. Aaron's staff, which eventually buds, um, it shows one of the miracles God has done. Manna, to remind them that God has provided for them every single day on the journey through the desert. And the third element is the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God on stone. The lid of that Ark of the Covenant is made of pure gold. No wood at all is involved. Part of that uh, top of the ark is also um, two angels bowing down um, before God. So what's fascinating is in the second commandment, God says, you cannot make an image of me, but he says, you can make images of those closest to me. So it's the angels themselves and sitting in between those two angels, God is being enthroned in the presence of Israel. There's about a handful of places we can find that in scripture. Uh, the favorite of mine is in Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. And so you have in the middle of Israel, in the, uh, all the encampment, this place, this light, this piece of heaven amidst all of the nation of Israel. Now remember, we're about 2 million people at this point. And so there's all these surrounding tents that are taking place and they're doing whatever they can as they kind of make this concentric circle around the Ark of the Covenant and pardon me, the tabernacle. But the tabernacle itself shows a piece of heaven on earth. And in the midst of all of the disorder that all of humanity is creating, God is saying, I want to see something different. I want to point you back to creation so you can see how beautiful it was. The finest materials, the most precious materials, uh, items of precious metals and others that are stunning in beauty. And then we get back to this picture of the covenant, of the tabernacle. And you'll can see that the priests are dressed like the tabernacle, something that can't possibly by accident. Now, just a couple minutes ago, I said the eastern entrance, um, the entrance to the tabernacle always needs to be on the east side. Why would that take place? Look at the inner curtain from the holy place, the most holy place, and you'll see angels on that. That's representing what happened back at the Garden of Eden, once again, looking back to creation. And so you have Adam and Eve who sin, and God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, and where do they go? East. And in the very next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel. And what does God say? You're to go east. And then when people come to meet with God, they head from the east. 
And outside of the Garden of Eden, God places two angels, two cherubim that have swords of fire. And he says, this in the same way, I'm going to have a curtain with two angels and you cannot see me except for one priest and that but once a year. This is the tabernacle. And what's fascinating about this is that it continues to show a picture of creation throughout Um, before any of the priests are allowed to serve in the tabernacle, they have to be ordained. That ordination process, exactly seven days. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I've commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them. Once again, pointing back to Genesis chapter one and two in a seven-day creation process. But there's more than that. It's only seven times in these seven chapters does God say, the Lord said to Moses, this is fascinating. And the first time is in chapter 25, verse 11. He says, uh, thus says the Lord to Moses, we need to raise money for the tabernacle. And it's pointing to Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, where God says, let there be light. He needs light to see so he can create. He needs materials so that he can build that tabernacle. The uh, elements of the tabernacle are um, days two, three, four, and five, where he's continuing to fill up the earth with all of its glory and splendor. And he's filling up the tabernacle with everything that is beautiful. On day six in Genesis chapter one, he creates his finest work, man and woman. In day six, the sixth time that this happens, the creation of uh, the idea of the Lord said to Moses, he appoints the craftsmen, Bezalel and Oholiab. And then the seventh time that it comes up is the Sabbath. And in Genesis chapter two, verse one, he says, and then there is a day of rest. And the seventh time he says this, he says the importance of the Sabbath. Now, I understand if you took the challenge last week and said, I'm gonna read all 15 of these chapters coming up to Sunday, you bogged down in details. But when you see the forest for the trees, you see this is a beautiful picture of God's creation and heaven on earth. I love this quote from Peter Enns, one of the leading scholars on Exodus. By entering the tabernacle, Israel entered God's house. By keeping the Sabbath, Israel entered God's rest. The beginning of Genesis is amazing. You read Genesis chapter one and two and you think this is unreal what God has done by speaking the world into existence. And you read chapters one and two and you think what's going to happen next? And you flip over to Genesis chapter three and you see humanity fall. And we go from the instruction of the tabernacle to the worship of the golden calf. And you go, wait a sec. It's doing it all over again. There's creation and then there's fall. For 40 days, Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai in just incredible relationship with God the Father. And he's thinking, this is amazing. And he's giving us instructions as to what to do. And then out of nowhere, there's just this sucker punch to the gut. And God says to Moses, check this out. Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, we're going to bounce around chapter 32 quite a bit. At the beginning of the message, I said last week at the end of chapter 24, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. Aaron stays down with the people. And God says to Aaron, if anybody has any questions, he needs to come and talk to you. This is chapter 32, verses 1 to 6. Let's see how well that works out. When the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us God's plural, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The idea, this Moses is a sign of contempt. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he's gone. We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron, lead us from here. So Aaron said to him, verse two, 
Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your what? Gods, plural. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. A couple things definitely worth noticing. In chapter 25, where we started our passage this morning, God said to Moses, go out to the nation of Israel and request that they bring their tithes and their offerings. We do the same thing every Sunday morning during announcements. We request that you give of, your, um, of what God has given to you. But that's not what Aaron does. Aaron commands that people take off their golden earrings. And he specifically says earrings because the ear is symbolic of obedience and telling people to rip it off as though the word of God does not matter to us anymore. We are going to go our own way. Look again at verse four. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, and brought, who brought you up of the land of Egypt. And God says to Moses, you need to go down for your people are doing a terrible thing. And I think verse 24 of chapter 32 might be the funniest verse in the whole book. So Moses comes down from the mountain meeting with, uh, with God and he looks at his brother Aaron. He says, Aaron, what were you doing? This is Aaron's response. So Aaron says to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Your kids ever say things like that to you? Yeah, I remember being a kid and knocking down a Christmas tree with my twin sisters. My mom would come and say, who knocked it down? We'd all go, oh, the cat. We don't even have a cat. Who knocked the tree down? And Moses is looking at Aaron saying, what are you doing? And God is ticked going backwards now to verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. It's stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I might consume them, that I might make a great nation out of you, Moses. So God is furious. I rescued this people up out of Egypt. We crossed the Red Sea together. I provided food for them every single day. I said, I've rescued you. I've I've saved you. Would you like to be in relationship with me? And they say, yes, last week we made a covenant and now you don't want me anymore and you worship a golden calf and God is is furious. Verses 11 to 14 of chapter 32 might rattle your theology a bit, and I think it's beautiful. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did that God bring them out to kill them on the mountain and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. The Lord relented from this disaster that he had spoke of bringing to his people. Did you see what happened there? Moses walks God off the cliff. 
God was so angry, he says, Moses, I'm just going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them out. We're going to start all over again, and it's going to be just you. Forget the rest of Israel. And we get this incredible human picture of God. For those of you who grew up in church, think about um, what you would say if somebody said, hey, what are the attributes? What are the characteristics of God? What would you say? He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's all present. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He's gracious and compassionate. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's holy, holy, holy. He's forgiving. Would you ever say, I worship a God who changes his mind? I worship a God who argues with people. I worship a God who gets frustrated. And yet it's not only here in Exodus chapter 32. We see this regularly over and over again that God is some, a God who changes his mind. And we should worship because of that. Because why else do we pray? Why else do we come to God expecting that he would hear our prayers if not to change his mind? If not to open his eyes to what's happening around us. And to say, God, please, please change your mind so that you might work in my life. Jumping down to chapter 32, verse 30, we're going to hear an incredible shadow of Jesus. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, listen. But if not, blot me out of your book. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place where I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Moses says, let me make atonement. But for some reason, he doesn't talk about animals. And we've been talking about animals for the last number of chapters. Why doesn't an animal pay for the sin? Because Moses realizes that something else is going on here. Something else is needed besides just an animal's blood. It needs a human sacrifice. Take another look at verse 32. If you will forgive their sin, please do it. But if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. Take my life so that Israel might be spared. God turns down Moses' offer, but 1,500 years later, He'll send his own son to do the very same thing. Now, thankfully, however, God sees the heart of Moses and the genuine repentance of the people. Because of this repentance, he says, I will be your God. And then perhaps the most powerful verse in the book, 34, verse 5 and 6. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and said, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jumping down to verses 29 and 30 of chapter 35 this time. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know what the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Over and over in the book of Exodus, the people have been upset with Moses and they've treated him with contempt. Moses, you're the Jew who went and lived in Pharaoh's palace. 
Moses, you're the Jew who abandoned your people and ran off to Midian. Moses, you're the guy who came back from Midian thinking he was special because he was Jewish who grew up in Pharaoh's palace and you said to Pharaoh, let my people go and it only made our lives worse. And throughout this journey to Sinai, they've been treating him with contempt. They treated him with contempt early on in this passage. That's why they built the golden calf. And at the end of chapter 35, Moses comes down and his face is shining with glory. And for the first time, time, Israel treats him with awe and with reverence. My friends, watch this because this is beautiful. And it gave me chills when I found it this past week. The instructions of the tabernacle, God is creating. The worship of the golden calf shows us the fall. The building of the tabernacle is a picture of redemption. The entire gospel is packed into these 15 chapters and it is beautiful. So let's look ahead to what God is doing. But before we do that, let's see what God is doing right now in the very midst of the nation of Israel. We have uh, this idea of the tabernacle. And for the people in the ancient Near East, this idea of a tabernacle, this idea of a place of worship isn't a brand new idea. There's a three-part layout. There's the outer court, the inner court, and the deity. For Israel, there's an outer court, inner court, in the throne of God. For the people, the tabernacle is the home for God. So they, would, um, they treated the tabernacle as though this were his actual house. This is where God lived. And so God is saying, create for me a tabernacle. I will live among you. And then there's the splendor of the tabernacle, which the ancient Near Eastern did, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the people living around in that area, as well as God is saying to his people, build me a place that is splendorful and beautiful. But there's distinct differences. The three-part layout for the ancient Near East was outer court, inner court, and see the deity. For the Israelites, it was the outer court, inner court, curtain, and then deity, because we cannot place our eyes on him. I, this part's amazing. The priests in the ancient Near East, or Mesopotamian and Egypt and other places, treated a god like he was their little baby, even though he was a god. He was made of gold or stone or precious images, and so there would be light so that their god could see. There would be food in that place so that God could take in the nutrients through its eyes. There would be a bed that they would lay the God down in and pet him and sing him a good night lullaby. I may have made up that last part. But for the, for the Israelites, that's not the case at all. The bread is there for the people. The light is there for the people. And God says, you will not lay your eye upon me for no one will see me face to face. And the splendor of the tabernacle, the biggest tabernacle in the ancient Near East, 800 meters long. That is massive. And the people decided what they would do, but God said, no, 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 I will build it. And I will build it my way. And I will show you what is to be done. And there's this beautiful picture where the Israelites are saying, okay, we are different. We're so radically different. But it's also pointing to something that lays ahead. Not only does the tabernacle point us back to creation, it also points us ahead to a future redemption. This part is beautiful. You walk in from the east and you see the bronze altar. What does that altar represent? The place of Jesus Christ himself who sacrifices his life, his body for the sins of all people. If you look closely, you'll notice that there's horns on that altar. Those horns were told to give forgiveness and strength. In 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, we have Adonijah and Joab who run into the tabernacle and hold on to the horns of the altar and say, God, forgive us for what we have done. And unless we come to God 
and ask for forgiveness, we cannot be saved. We get a little bit closer to the tabernacle and we see the wash basin. And without the basin there, we cannot be cleansed of our sins for what God has done for us. And it is then and only then that the Apostle Peter says, if you believe in Jesus and what he has done for you, you can be brought in to the tabernacle. And so we see the tabernacle and we see this beautiful picture of the um, table of, of the presence on the right. And we look in and we are reminded that we will one day feast with God in glory. We look straight ahead and we see the altar of incense and we're reminded in Revelation chapter eight that the prayers of the saints go up to God. We look to the left and we see the lamp and we're reminded that in the future glory, we don't need to see a light in the temple because God himself is the light. And we're reminded the tabernacle shows up as Jesus Christ. And then John chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, his dwelling among us means tabernacle. So God tabernacled among the Israelites. God tabernacled among the Jewish people in the flesh. And that inner place I mentioned earlier in the message is a perfect cube pointing ahead to Revelation chapter 21. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide and the angel measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. And we once again see this beautiful picture of that tabernacle. And we see the curtain in its finest material and the angels that are present And in Revelation, we are told that the angels stand outside of the gate of the brand new Jerusalem, but the gate is not shut. The gate is thrown wide open. And for the ancient Israelites, the tabernacle was placed among their people. 1,500 years later, Jesus comes and he tabernacles among his people. In 40 days, uh, 40 days 40, 50, I'm sorry, don't have everything memorized. Penta, 50, at the day of Pentecost, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit and he says, now you are going to be my tabernacle. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up onto the stage and I want you to think about what's taking place here. There's a reason the priests look similar to those in the tabernacle. There's a reason they're dressed like the tabernacle. Because God is saying, in the same sense that I placed my tabernacle and it was a piece of heaven on earth, in the same sense that I sent my son Jesus and he brought the kingdom to earth, so now you are my tabernacle. You will be a piece of heaven on earth. Next week, we're gonna start our Advent series, Kingdom Christmas. We are reminded at the end of Exodus that we are God's priests. We are God's tabernacle. We are God's people dwelling in the midst of a world, showing the world around us what it means to be a piece of heaven on earth. What's the application today? Think about that. That God has said the most beautiful materials, my wealth, my strength, my power, my majesty, dwelling in us that we are God's priest. We are God's tabernacle among a world that so desperately needs good news. That, my friends, is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Exodus. Thank you for the story of redemption that we saw over and over and over again. 
May we be humbled to think that we are your tabernacle. We are the good news of priests in the kingdom of God with a world that doesn't know who you are. So God, may we shine brightly and in all your glory and all your power and all your presence, may it come through us that the spirit of Christ is alive in us and that we are the good news, that we are a piece of heaven on earth. So Lord, forgive us for our sins where we have fallen short, but fill us with your spirit so that we might go out and tell the world the good news of Jesus being the kingdom among the darkness around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.